Thank you, Jennifer. Let me invite you to take your Bibles. Join me in the book of Ephesians again, chapter 4. Today we begin reading in verse 17. Ephesians 4, verse 17. As we have seen thus far in the book of Ephesians, it is the hope of the Apostle Paul as he writes to this church in Ephesus that they would not only come to faith in Christ, but they would then live their lives in such a way that other people would find their lives attractive, winsome, appealing, that they would actually want what they have, that they would actually desire to follow the same Christ. And the way that that is, uh, if you will, articulated in the Scripture is that God sets his affection in the Old Testament upon a particular group of people. This group has come to be called the Hebrews or the Jews. God loves them. God provides for them. God protects them. God prospers them. And in response to all of that, their response is to obey God. Or not. The plan, of course, is if they obey God, then God continues to leverage that relationship in such a way that they are a light to the darkness, that they become this winsome or appealing group of people that other people look at and say, how does all of this work? You people are this and that and these and those, and these, these are attractive things. These are appealing things. These are actually things that we desire for ourselves, and, and our lives are train wrecks, but your lives, you're, you're prospering. You're, you're happy. You're, you're at peace with one another, and, and that looks so so attractive. We want what you have. Tell us about your God. That's the strategy. The strategy is that the people of God would live in such a way that that their lives would reflect the glory of God and that God would be magnified in the hearts of people who heretofore have rejected him or not believed in him, not trusted him, not hoped in him, and have no regard for him and frankly don't want him at all until they do. So we are to be salt and light, to use New Testament terms. Salt that, that in such a way that people will, will taste and, and, and desire, if, as it were. There, there is a, a, a savoriness to our lives. There is a savoriness to our relationships. There is something that's attractive. It's actually beneficial and, and, and profitable for other people to, to join with us, so forth. So in the New Testament, the church is the people of God. God has now brought in Gentiles who heretofore have not heard this, and He's, he's brought them to faith, and he's, he's brought them to this group, and He's mixed Jew and Gentile. Here previously have, have been enemies or, 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 if you will, combatants against each other, if, if not physically, at least relationally, they have kept their distance, and now he's brought them together in the church, and he has invited them all to not be merely Jews or Gentiles, but to be Christians. There's a, not just two classes, but three classes, three groups in the economy of the New Testament. And you'll notice we begin reading here in a moment that they are, they are, they are Gentiles, but told not to act like Gentiles, because they're not just Gentiles anymore. They're changed Gentiles. They are Christian Gentiles. They're Christians, and that defines them, and that is their their new identity. And as such, they are to live in such a way that they demonstrate that God is actually helpful, profitable, beneficial, that God is worthy of praise. He is glorious, and that this relationship with God is satisfying and peaceful, and it produces joy. It it gives a life that the world talks about, but can never deliver on. In other words, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be such an environment that the world has never seen anything like it. That's what we're supposed to be. Now, we can't do that alone, right? We need help. We need real help. And the good news of the gospel is that God sent help. And we have that hope among us that His help 
will be adequate, will be sufficient, and will be generous. He tells us again and again. We've sung about it already. His grace, his grace is not only adequate. He lavishes his grace upon us. He is more generous to us than we could ever imagine. He gives us all of the strength, all of the wisdom, all of the insight, all the help. We can be who God wants us to be because he has given us his son and his spirit. So we're going to see all of that in this long section beginning here in Ephesians 4. So let's read. I want you to note the emphasis in the second verse we read on the life of God. So what does it mean to live a life dedicated to God? So here it is, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So his exhortation here is to live a life that is anchored in God. In other words, he has done what he's done repeatedly, and will do so again as we read through the balance of this book over the next several weeks, is he, has made, he makes an indicative statement, and from that, he then makes a series of imperatives. Basically, he says, you are, therefore you must. You are, therefore you will. You are, therefore I, I command you, I, I tell you, this is what you now must do. As a result of who you are, you are to go and do. Now, this is obviously the disconnect that the world sees with the church. Would you agree? I think so. The world says, you Christians claim to be Christian, and yet your doing doesn't follow your claims of being. You are, but you don't act like you are. You say, but you don't do what you say. This is a challenge, is it not, for the Christian church? People want to say, well, the Christian church is a bunch of whatever, and you can fill in the blank with uh, whatever uh, derogatory comment is vogue today. But I assure you, friend, that's an age-old criticism. That's nothing new. That's, that's actually not more common today than it was 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years ago. In fact, from the beginning, Satan has been an accuser of the brethren. The very name Satan means slanderer. He's an accuser of the brethren. He's always mocked the people of God. He's always mocked the holiness of God. Consider again his relationship with God as pertains to the man Job. 
Satan appears before God after being on the earth, and God asks him, have you considered my servant Job? And what does Satan say about Job? He slanders him. He says, well, he's soft. Well, he only follows you because you pad the walls. He only follows you because you take care of him. He only follows you because you've made him rich, etc., etc. In other words, Satan slanders Job. That is his way. And the people who are not of God do the same thing. They slander God by slandering the people of God. If you're looking to live a life where you are not slandered for being a Christian, that life doesn't exist. Get over yourself. They're not trying to hurt your feelings. You're just a pawn. You're not the reason that people are angry. You're not the reason that people are offended. They are offended because their very DNA, spiritual DNA, is anti-God. And we see that plainly in this passage. So I want you to notice a couple of things, and then we're going to make, I hope, a great application here at the end. Notice in this first paragraph, essentially we might summarize it by saying, stop walking like the Gentiles. I wish it had said Egypt there so I could say stop walking like an Egyptian, but it doesn't. It says Gentiles, although Egyptians are Gentiles in the biblical economy. But it does say stop walking like the Gentiles. There is in verse 17, and you'll note the first thing he points out is that their mind is, and there's a series of descriptors, there's this issue of futility. Their mind is darkened. They walk in ignorance. They are hard-hearted. The futility of their minds. So there is an issue of the mind. How, how deceived, how wrong, how, how lost, how dark are these people who are not believers? Well, we live in a world that wants to essentially take the opposite approach that the Bible describes here. We live in a world that wants to suggest that people are basically good. Now, I'm not suggesting that people are bad in the worldly sense of the word. I, I absolutely believe that for the most part, people aspire to a certain level of decorum. People actually don't, most people at least, don't want to be rude, don't want to be thought of as rude, don't want to be thought of as unkind, don't want to be thought of as uncaring. For the most part, people are kind, compassionate, and to some degree generous, so forth. You get to sort of strike the... The, the right rock, and, and people will give a lot of money, people will give a lot of energy, give a lot of sympathy, give a lot of publicity, etc. And we could say about all of that, people are basically good. However, that is not a moral category. As we shall see, the Bible deals here in what amounts to being moral categories. People are basically good in that they care about people's concerns and care about people's disadvantage and they care about people being hurt and so forth and that's righteous and good and we're grateful for that. But that's not what this is talking about. This says that these Gentiles who we used to be and must no longer walk as do so in the futility of their minds. Now, the word here translated mind, depending on what translation you read, is more appropriately sort of a mindset. It doesn't just mean the way they think. It means the way their minds force them to think, to, to think that they are in sync with their mindset. It is their mindset. I'll give you an illustration that works for me. This is the week of the egg bowl going to be played in Stark Bowl. Now, there's a lot more Mississippi State fans in this room than there are Ole Miss fans, so we'll, we'll pick on the Mississippi State fans just because I like to pick on the big hornet's nest instead of the little ones. It's an illustration, so don't go too far with me, all right? Let's assume for the sake of conversation that the SEC sends an officiating crew, and every one of them is a Mississippi State graduate. Every official is an MSU graduate. Now, how do you think the Ole Miss people are going to handle that? 
they're going to say that's, uh, that's a foul. Not going to put up with that. Not going to have that. Then, of course, the first blown call is going to be, well, of course, he has a bias. He said, well, wh- where do you get that? Well, because, you know, if you, if you are this, you're forced to see things a certain way. You're forced, to, you're forced to choose a certain way. You can't help yourself because you are this. You're an MSU graduate. You, you want this to go MSU's way. Now, let me say clearly, that's an illustration that would never happen. That's not going to happen. Some of you are going to immediately do some deep dives on the internet about officials and where they went to college. It's an illustration, all right? It's not going to happen. But that's the point of this word, isn't it? The futility of their mind. There's a bias. There is a, there is, there is a calibration of their mind. And they can't see the world except the way they see the world. They can't. People say all the time, people, I'll talk to Christian people and they're reacting to the negative circumstances of life and how immoral people are or how violent people are or how much crime there is and so forth. And people will invariably say, I just don't know how people can act like that. <laughs> well, of course they can't. You see, they have a mind that can't act any other way. And that's just an illustration. People want to reduce the gospel to simple facts. And can't you see? Can't you see? Can't you see? And from an apologetic standpoint, we want to logically convince people, look, the Bible predicted in the Old Testament all these prophecies, uh, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, et cetera, et cetera, Herod and the, the, the bitterness of uh, the, the killing of children, all this predicted in the Old Testament. Now it's come true in the New Testament. Uh, can't you see how this connects to that and all of these connections? And so, bang, you land right there on Jesus. Can't you see that? No. Why can't you? Because I won't. I don't. You can see it because you have eyes to see. You can see it because you are not darkened in your understanding. Understand that this is a spiritual condition. This is not merely a physical condition. It's not that they have bad eyes or that they have a bad brain or that somehow their IQ is not sufficient or any of these other things that are physical criteria. He is not talking about that. Rather, he is saying, you must not walk like the Gentiles because their lives are characterized by a mindset that is not like yours. There is a futility of their mindset. They are darkened in their understanding. They are ignorant of the life of God, and their hearts are hardened. Understand, you don't have a human fix for that. There's not a pill, there's not a a remediation, there's not a lesson, there's not a relationship. There's nothing on earth that you can offer to fix that or change that. His point is not to argue that that is somehow uh, something that hinders you. It is something to say, that's not your current situation. He, He quickly says that. Uh, Verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ. You're not that. You're a Christian. You're not merely a Gentile who who is this way. Let me show you an illustration. Perhaps the best illustration in the Bible is Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. There's a fairly lengthy section. We won't read it all here, but fairly lengthy section about uh, these who, who do not understand God. And he, he describes them in very graphic language. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Okay, you could stop there and you could say, yeah, God is anti-bad behavior. That's not news that you'll note that now he's going to explain this unrighteousness and ungodliness. 
And he's not merely talking about bad behavior. Who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain as the nose on their face. It's plain as the stars in the sky. It's plain as the seasons that change. In the fall, the leaves turn colors and they drop. And they've done it every fall of your life. Every day the sun comes up in the east. Every day the sun goes down in the west. Every day creation speaks the majesty and the glory of a God. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. How did that mountain get there? How did that planet get there? How does that moon stay there? Why do these orbits actually work? We could go on and on and on, and we could answer this question, how, with some other answer besides God. But God intends that even creation itself would testify to the existence and the glory and the power and the majesty of God. And yet, God has people, we have friends, we have family members, some of us, who by their unrighteousness suppress that knowledge. Why? It's not because they're ignorant. Because they are not. They are anything but ignorant. The sun comes up every day. They are not ignorant. Verse 21 tells us, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, which is synonymous with worship or praise. They didn't praise God. They didn't thank God. They didn't worship God. They didn't acknowledge God. It's not God. It's just something else. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Do you see the same terminology? Futility, minds, darkened thinking. You see the same concepts in Romans 1 that you see here in Ephesians 4. He's saying these people are not righteous. And the reason they are not righteous is because they are of a mindset, they are of a bias, they are of a tendency to be ignorant about God. They reject God. They turn away from God. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. The immortal God, the God who's in charge of planets, in charge of suns, in charge of rivers and mountains, and birds and bees and humans. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, birds and cows, dogs and horses, who knows, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, failure to acknowledge God is the fundamental sin. But if you have a mindset against that, you will not acknowledge God. You cannot. You don't have any inclination to. It doesn't matter if the entire world is for God. You are not because your mindset is totally against God. This is the nature of the world in which we live. The world is not pro-God. Friend, you must not walk like that. You must walk differently. Stop walking like the Gentiles. So it's a mind thing, but it's more than that. It's also a body thing. Notice verse 19, back in Ephesians 4. They become callous, and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Sensuality, it's a word here in the ESV, sensuality. In the King James is the word lasciviousness. 
lasciviousness. I'm predicting that none of you use that word in polite conversation this week. Lasciviousness. Actually, the truth is there is a uh, felonious category. It's a felony to be lascivious. It means to be sexually inappropriate in jurisprudence. In this case, it means to live by your senses, your sexual senses. And he describes them. They have become callous. They live according to their senses. And they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Does this characterize the spirit of the age in which we live? Absolutely. We're to stop walking like this because this is not who we are. It is who we were. We were at one time blinded to God, ignorant of God, unconcerned about God, and living according to our desires. If it feels good, I need to do it. It's my body. I have a right to treat it this way. It's my domain. I have authority over my choices. I have authority over my words. I have authority over all the things that I want to do. And this is the nature of the Gentile way, the way apart from God. But his exhortation here in the beginning is, don't do that. You must no longer walk like that. Because we know what happens. God has brought judgment and will continue to bring judgment against those who persist in this. This is not the way of God. So his antidote for that, he begins here in the end of this paragraph, is to, verse 22, put off your old self. Now this is familiar language in Paul's letters. He uses this several times. The most glaring example of this is in Colossians chapter 3. We shall see that momentarily. But he, he asks us to put off the old self with its deceitful desires. It belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through your deceitful desires. Now, Paul has a lump term, if you will, a catch-all term for this. It's called the flesh. The flesh. The flesh. Think about the book of Galatians. Turn back to Galatians chapter 5 as an example. Here's how the apostle describes it in Galatians. He says, verse 16, Galatians 5, 16, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. In other words, there is a competition. There is a battle. There is a war. And that war is occurring in your very body. And in the body of every other person. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. Here they are. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, or lasciviousness. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You must not walk like the Gentiles. You must not because these things prohibit or hinder our finally reaching heaven's shores. This is not the nature of God. This is not the nature of the people of God. And this is not the way for the people of God to develop a, a life, if you will, a, a, a culture that is winsome to the world, that gives glory to God and says, hey, I'm interested in you and your way of life. I'm interested in you and your faithfulness to God. I'm interested in that because you have a joy, you have a happiness, you have a peace that, that I don't understand, that I don't get. And I'm tired of my train wreck of a life and I need what you have. I would ask you, where, where does the life of the Gentile lead? Well, it leads to more and more. There is a downward spiral of chaos the, the more you give in to sensuality, the more you give in to lasciviousness, the more you give in to licentiousness, the more you give in to 
to sexual desires and being driven by sexual desires, et cetera, et cetera, the more that just cycles down, down, down. The world is not getting better as it becomes more libertarian. So he says, put off, verse 22, Ephesians 4, put off the old self and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, he says you are now a believer. He's not calling into question your commitment, but he is saying that in light of your commitment, now put off and put on. We'll use clothes as an example. Uh, most of us on Saturdays dress more casually than we do on Sundays. Most of us. Some of you might dress up on Saturdays. Some of you don't dress up on Sundays. I'm not judging any of that, not criticizing any of that. I'm simply saying most of us know there is a Saturday dress code and there is a Sunday dress code. We had to put off and we have to put on. And we do so because there is an inner compass that says so. There's no law. There's no rule. Okay, your mother had a rule, right? Your father had a rule. Your grandfather had a rule. But, but you don't have a rule. But you do, don't you? Your, your rule is in here. Your rule says it's this day and I am free or I am obligated to wear certain things. I'm going to put off and I'm going to put on. I want to encourage you to think about that as you hear these words. What is, what is the point the apostle is trying to make? You must no longer walk like the Gentiles. Put off and put on. Put off the way of the Gentiles. Put off the way of unrighteousness. Put off the way of ungodliness. Put off the way that God promises to judge in Romans 1 and God promises to banish from heaven in Galatians chapter 5. Put off the desires of the flesh and put on, rather, the spirit of renewal in your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. What does it mean to live the life of God? It means to live the life of God. It means to change the way you live. And you do so because there is an inner compass that God has placed there that says this is out and this is in. Or this is off and this is on. And these are the things that are characterized my life. And he puts the monkey on our backs. He, he puts the responsibility on us. He is exhorting. He is challenging in this paragraph, he is commanding, stop doing that. Because it is destructive to the glory of God. It tarnishes God or the image of God, the majesty of God, the reputation of God. As the people of God, we are not merely Jews and Gentiles. We're in this new group that God has brought together. He has taken away this wall of hostility and he's brought us to himself. And he loves us and he's poured out his goodness upon us and he's made us righteous by virtue of the work of Christ. And now we are his children and as such, we are to live righteously before God and before the world. So stop walking like the Gentiles. Put off the old self with its deceitful, deceitful desires and put on the new self after the likeness of God. This is the exhortation of this first section. And then he gives application of that. In uh, this new paragraph beginning in verse 25, and there, there are five negative statements and one positive. I, I wish I had time. We don't. Uh, we're not going to take time, but I would urge you to recognize that any one of these uh, would merit not just a sermon, but a series of sermons, I assure you. I'll just try to be as brief as I know how to be. Notice his, his prohibitions. What does it mean to put off? What are you to put off? Here they are, five things. Verse 25, put off falsehood. Stop calling true things that are untrue. 
Stop lying. Stop bearing false witness. There's no end to applications of this. Put off falsehood. I've said many times, I say it again. There are 10 commandments. Half of them have to do with your vertical relationship with God. Half of them have to do with your relationship with man. Of all of the bad things that God could prohibit, murder, adultery, lying. Think about that. Lying. I will tell you, it is a fair statement to suggest that the culture thinks lying is not as big a deal as murder. But there are only five commandments among the ten that have to do with human relationships, and one of them is lying. If you don't think truthfulness matters, if you don't think integrity matters, then you're not paying attention. And if you want to poison your relationships with people, start lying to them. You can't have a relationship that's not based on truth. That's not based on trust of the truth. Lying is central to what's wrong with Gentiles who do not know God. And it must not be so among the people of God. Our word must be truth because our Savior is truth. And we love Him and follow Him. Let us be true. By the way, lying is the mask for so... It's the, you, could, you could list 30 sins that lying simply masks. Did you? No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. You're lying. You're lying to cover up. Lying just masks. It allows things done in the dark to stay in the dark. Lying. God hates lying. Therefore, he says, put away falsehood. This is not the nature of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Then again, verse 26, verse 27, be angry and do not sin. Uh, there's no end to people who want to quote that verse and say, I have a right to be angry. I have a right to be angry. After all, there is a righteous anger. <laughs> well, again, this is, the, this is perhaps the phrase we could spend months doing sermons on anger. In fact, I've got a library full of books. If you've got an anger problem, come see me. I'll help you get unangry if you would read, but most men won't read, so there you go. Uh, but I, I assure you, Jesus got angry in the Scripture. He got angry more than once, but not often. Let me say it differently. The default of Jesus is not anger. If your default is anger, you ain't Jesus. You're not walking like Jesus if your default is anger. And by the way, secondly, Jesus never got angry about things that were personal. You could tell him his mother wore combat boots and he didn't get mad. Jesus didn't get mad at personal offense. How much of your anger is personal offense anger? I would tell you virtually all of it. So the minute you want to excuse your anger and say, I have a right to be angry because he offended me, you need to know that's not Jesus' anger. In fact, they beat Jesus and he didn't get angry. They pulled his beard from his face. He didn't get angry. They pushed a crown of thorns on his head. He didn't get angry. They mocked him in Pilate's court. And he didn't get angry. And then they crucified him. And he didn't get angry. Instead, he prayed, Father, forgive them. So remember that the next time you want to justify your so-called righteous anger. The Bible says be angry and sin not. Don't sin. Because anger of man 
does not achieve the righteousness of God. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Solve it. Fix it. Complete the circle. Resolve it. Deal with anger appropriately. Again, we could talk for a long, long time. Verse 28. Here's the third thing. Let the thief no longer steal. Do not steal. Again, talk about the Ten Commandments. Do not steal. Do not steal. Why? Because stealing violates the trust of the group. the, The whole goal of God is to bring the church together in such a way that we are trusting of one another. There's a unity of purpose. And so we're not competing for somebody else's stuff. Our focus is heavenward. Our focus is Godward. And so therefore, we're not trying to steal another man's wife or another woman's husband. We're not trying to steal their car, their bicycle, or, or their money, or their reputation, or anything else. Don't steal. Keep your hands, keep your eyes, keep your mind fixed on Christ, because this is the nature of what it means to be a Christian. Put off the old self that wanted your neighbor's bike And put on the new self that is created in the likeness of God. Which is not worried about your neighbor's stuff. Fourthly, verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now that's, you might say, well that's a common phrase in the Bible. In fact, it's not. It's only used twice. Once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament. The Old Testament circumstances Isaiah 63 and there grieving of the Holy Holy Spirit of God is defined as rebellion against God you grieve the Holy Spirit of God by rebelling against God now here he doesn't actually define define but he does define don't grieve the Holy Spirit what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit he he then in verse 31 lists a bunch of things that are tantamount to rebellion or if you will then explanation for what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. Are any one of those attractive? Do any one of those forge solid relationships? Do any one of those bring peace in a group? Do any one of those make your family attractive? You know, most of us are going to get together with family this week. You all know I said in my letter this week, I'm getting together with, with, uh, with our children and grandchildren. There's 17 of us, and we're all together. And then Susan's family in Birmingham, we're getting together with them. There's going to, I think there's going to be 33 for Thanksgiving Day. It's going to be chaos. But it's the best kind of chaos, right? And we force ourselves to do it again and again and again. And we do so gladly and cheerfully. Do I sound cheerful? Yes, I am cheerful. (laughs) Very cheerful. So it's going to be a wonderful time. But I assure you, if somebody walks in with bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, or malice, We're not going to be very thankful. You know why? You know why it's hard? Hard to live at peace. Hard to be. Hard to be married. Hard to have family. Hard, hard to have friends, hard to have neighbors, hard, hard to have, hard to, you know why it's hard to have a church? Because folks keep dragging their old stuff into the conversation. The stuff that we're supposed to put off. We keep wearing it. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in your life these days. But maybe the reason there's a wake of sorrow or pain 
or difficulty or hardship or brokenness behind you, maybe, is because you're not putting off stuff. You know, we've got to resist. We've got to resist our own flesh. Romans 6 tells us we are at war, flesh against spirit. We do the very things we don't want to do. But you've got you to fix it. You've you got to get with God. You've got to rely on the Holy Spirit. And those things that grieve the Holy Spirit, that drive the Holy Spirit away, that poison the relationship with God and then with others, they're, they're all listed right here. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. Be careful, friend. Be faithful, be diligent. And, and, and fix it. Be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. That's a, that's a very practical way to force yourself to remedy what is broken. Don't go to bed angry. Stop telling falsehoods. Stop stealing. Why? Because when you put off stuff this is the stuff you put off and when you put on stuff you put on this last verse verse 32 be kind be tender-hearted be forgiving why because God in Christ forgave you it turns out friend that we used to be Romans 1 people. We used to be Gentiles without the new category, without Christ. But now Christ has forgiven me. So if Christ has forgiven me, what right do I have to say to anyone, I can't or I won't forgive you? I don't have that right. You gave up that right. It's called being born again. You're a new creation a new person act like it walk not like a gentile but walk like a christian walk in such a way that you reflect the fact that you are forgiven so therefore you forgive be kind because god has been kind to you he has forgiven a debt that you could not pay in a thousand lifetimes and he's forgiven that so god has been kind to you he's been generous to you he's been tender to you why are you not tender to other people why are you not tender to your wife why are you not tender to your husband why are you not tender to your children why are you not tender to your brothers and sisters your siblings your extended family why are you not tender why are you not tender to non-christians why do you have to sit in judgment and condemn and throw bombs all the time at unbelievers as if they're acting like unbelievers they are unbelievers. They are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from God. They're ignorant of the truth. And they are of a mind to continue to do it. And you're not going to fix it by yelling at them and condemning them. You're not. Stop doing that. Walk like a Christian. Be kind and tenderhearted. Manage your own business. And love well. Love deep, love long, because this is the way, this is the way our God has loved us. So this is Thanksgiving week, and some of us are going to be thrown into the laboratory right away. Maybe it's an opportunity. I'm sure it is. But even if it's not, somebody today 
may need a touch from you. They may need an apology. They may need to hear you repent of your lying, of your anger, of your stealing, of your clamor, of your malice, of your slander. Somebody today may need to hear you act like a Christian. We're not here to say, go and be perfect. We're here to say, go and follow the one who is perfect instead of following yourself who is clearly not perfect. Let's follow Jesus. And let's do it together. Because that's what church people do. They follow Jesus. And if we don't, well, we get what we deserve. But God surely doesn't get what he doesn't, what he deserves. He deserves glory. And he deserves to have a people who honor him. Let's help one another. Get there together. Pray with me. God, thank you for loving us today. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. It may be said of us, Father, that we submit to you, that we follow you, that we obey you, and that we do not grieve the Holy Spirit. May it be said of us, Father, that we are putting off the old man, the old self, putting on the new man. We will not give the flesh dominion. We will not. For the glory of God, for the glory of the church, let us walk like a Christian. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.